You are now listening to the October 22nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the 12 Apostles of Jesus. In today's episode, we will learn about Apostle Simon the Zealot. According to the biblical historian Josephus, there were four religious factions in the first century Israel. The first religious faction were the Pharisees, who appear often in the New Testament of the Bible. The Pharisees came about during the time period between the Old and New Testaments, Their primary charter was to practice the law with intent to fully and completely obey God's word. At the time, they were highly respected by the Jewish people. They studied the Old Testament and followed the word of God as recorded in Scripture. However, over the course of time, by the first century, their practices deviated much from their original intent. They fabricated additional laws in addition to the scriptures, and force people to keep their fabricated laws as if they were God's word. If people deviated from them, they judged people as if they violated God's law. The Pharisees would reprimand them and even brought them to the court with the intent to punish them. For this reason, the Pharisees were often confronted by Jesus for their hypocrisy. Jesus even accused them by saying, You brood of vipers, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33. The second religious faction were the Sadducees. Here is what is said about them in Acts chapter 23, verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. The Sadducees also appear in other parts of the Bible. Overall, they were somewhat like today's liberals and rejected traditional values. They did not believe in resurrection, angels, or spirits that they would consider supernatural. Many of them came from the high social class and they were generally in alliance with the Roman Empire. The third faction were the Essenes. They separated themselves from the world and lived in secluded communities similar to today's monasteries. They lived in the wilderness and lived on locusts and wild honey. Their lifestyle actually resembled the lifestyle of John the Baptist as recorded in Matthew chapter 3. For this reason, some biblical scholars suggest that John the Baptist might have been an Essene. The fourth faction were the Zealots. The hallmark of this faction was that they opposed the Roman Empire and used force to fight for Israel's independence. They waged covert warfare by mainly striking against those that aligned with the Roman Empire. In particular, there was a group of zealots who were called the Sicarii. Members of this group were assassins. They carried concealed daggers. When they saw their targets, such as high officials of the Roman Empire or the Jews that sided with the Romans, they would stealthily move in to eliminate them. The zealots shared strong patriotism 
and were ready to die for their country. Here is a question and a hint. We said we would consider the Apostle Simon today. Which faction do you think he belonged to among the four we just discussed? The hint is that he was called Simon the Zealot. Well, here is what Luke chapter 6 verse 15 has to say. And Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot. Matthew chapter 4 verse 10 says, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Mark chapter 3 verse 18 says, And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. Simon, of course, was a member of the Zealots. Those fought for the independence of their country from the Romans. They struck against others that worked for the Romans. The Apostle Simon could have been a Sicarii carrying a concealed dagger and a hit list of names he would need to assassinate. All this changed when he met Jesus. Today, we will try to attain the spiritual lessons that the Lord gives us through the life of Simon the Zealot. We will consider how his value system was transformed after meeting Jesus. We see two incidents that demonstrated the change of Simon the Zealot. The first incident had to do with his relationship with Matthew. As Jesus began his ministry, he called both Simon and Matthew. Until then, Simon and Matthew had walked entirely different paths in life. Matthew was a tax collector that catered to the Roman interest, and Simon was a member of the Zealot faction that resisted the Romans. When Jesus first called him, Matthew was working at the booth collecting taxes from the Jews. Upon being called, Matthew immediately got up and followed Jesus. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his house and held a feast. At that time, Simon the Zealot was already part of Jesus' entourage. Many sinners came to the feast. As we learn during the episode about the Apostle Matthew, those at the feast were tax collectors and prostitutes. Prostitutes were women who profited from selling their bodies, and tax collectors were men who profited from selling their country. It is highly likely that the tax collectors were on the hit list for the assassins from the zealots. It is in fact quite possible that Matthew and Zacchaeus might have been assigned to Simon the Zealot for assassination. After all, they collected taxes from his fellow Jews with a Roman power behind them. Now Simon was invited to join Matthew and his friend at the feast. The only way that can happen is if Simon's value system had changed by now. Otherwise, he would not be in the same room with the tax collectors that were in partnership with the Roman government. Had it been the Simon of old, he would not have allowed himself to be feasting with the likes of Matthew and his kind. In fact, since all his enemies were in one place, he might have taken this as a great opportunity to eliminate all of them. He would have drawn his dagger, the feast 
become bloody and turned into a site of terrible multiple murders. The terrible news would have spread quickly and would certainly not have helped Jesus' ministry. Now, as a disciple of Jesus, Simon the Zealot did none of those. He took part in making the feast into a peaceful event by sharing fellowship with sinners and eating and drinking with them. The zealots and tax collectors were like water and oil. They could never mix. Simon the Zealot was someone that would go after someone like Matthew with the intent to kill. And Matthew the tax collector was someone that had to run from someone like Simon the Zealot. Through Jesus, they became brothers and eventually carried out the wonderful ministry together. The second incident that demonstrated Simon's change took place on the hills of Gethsemane. We will continue to share Simon's change during the next lesson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Come set your rule and reign In our hearts again Increase in us we pray Unveil why we're made Come set our hearts ablaze with hope Like wildfire in our very souls Holy Spirit come invade us now We are your church We need your power in us Seek your kingdom first We hunger and we thirst Refuse to waste our lives For you're our joy and prize To see the captive hearts released The hurt, the sick, the poor at peace We lay down our lives for heaven's church we pray revive this earth build your kingdom here let the darkness fear show your mighty hand heal our streets
darkness clear Show your mighty hand Heal our streets and land Set your church on fire When this nation back Change the atmosphere Build your kingdom here We pray Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Seeing Who Jesus Really Is Master. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 8. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. Mark chapter 8. In your Bible, and as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in Montgomery County and Loudoun, Prince William, Arlington, others online. It's good to be together. So I'm going to start with a question for each one of you in this room and other locations online, right where you're sitting. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Everybody has an answer to that question, some kind of answer. And how you answer that question will determine everything about your life today and tomorrow and for all of eternity. Who do you say Jesus is? And I know that for some of you, you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you've come today with a friend or family member or joining in or just on your own online. For those of you who participated in our last congregational meeting, I shared about somebody in the lobby here at Tyson's on Sunday recently who shared with one of our elders, I had a dream this week and a man in the dream said I needed to come here. So I did. And long story short, that person ended up putting their faith in Jesus. So some of you are new to church. You're not sure who Jesus is. And I sincerely pray today that this would be the moment when God opens your eyes to see who Jesus is. But not just you. There are others. I'm convinced many others who've been around church for a long time, maybe even most of your life, yet you still haven't seen who Jesus really is. You've seen and maybe even believed in a picture of Jesus that is either inaccurate or at least incomplete. And you desperately need God to open your eyes to see who Jesus really is. Because your life for eternity depends on it. And we're going to talk even more about that next week for those who may have been around Jesus for a long time. But let me show you what I mean today. The last two weeks, we've read Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through 26, a story about Jesus healing a blind man. And I shared a couple of weeks ago how this is a unique story and that Mark is the only person in the Bible who tells us this story, not Matthew, Luke, or John, when they're talking about the life of Jesus. And the healing of this blind man takes place in two stages. Unlike 
any other miracle that Jesus performed. So let me read it again. I'll put it up here on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you, just to catch up those of you who may not have been here the last couple of weeks. Starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, the Bible says, they, talking about the disciples with Jesus, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him, Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Now, in this story, it's pretty plain. A man goes from not being able to see at all to being able to see some to being able to see perfectly. And the whole story is obviously about sight. It's interesting. We don't actually notice it in the English, but there are actually eight different Greek words for sight and seeing that are used in verses 23 through 25 here. And the point is, there's a lot of emphasis, even in the language, on this idea of sight. So, why does Mark tell us this story about a gradual healing of physical sight at this point? in his account of Jesus' life. Well, look around the context in this story, what comes before and what comes after. In the passage right before this, if you look up in verse 18, you see the disciples in a boat with Jesus, and Jesus looks at them and says, having eyes, do you not see? And then, here in verse 23, that's the exact same language he uses when he looks at this blind man, he says to him, do you see anything? So this is our first clue that Mark may be telling this story about physical sight to help us understand spiritual sight. Because the disciples at the first part of this chapter are spiritually blind. They're not seeing who Jesus is. They need their eyes open. So Mark tells this story of a physical sight, a man receiving physical sight in two stages, and then read what happens next in verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, this is interesting. Here's a picture of people who don't see Jesus correctly. Their picture of Jesus is inaccurate, incomplete, kind of like seeing people, but they look like trees walking. People see Jesus, but they think he's a prophet or Elijah from the Old Testament or John the Baptist come back from the dead. They don't see Jesus clearly. So Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And those four words signal an incredibly significant moment in the book of Mark and in the life of these disciples. Because up until this point, God and demons are the only ones in the book of Mark who have acknowledged who Jesus actually is as the Son of God, or specifically the title here is the Christ, which means the Messiah. This is the first time in the book of Mark. We're in chapter 8. We've been studying this book together since last fall. This is the first time 
that a disciple says who Jesus really is. Peter and the disciples are beginning to see what other people don't see. Now, I mentioned we're going to talk about some of this more next week, Lord willing, about how even the disciples' sight is incomplete, even at this point. But this week, I want to pause and consider the significance of this moment, this statement, not just for Peter and the disciples, but for you right where you're sitting right now. And for me in our lives and the significance of this statement for the church, even specifically this church. Because this question, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am is critical for you, for me, and for this church. On two levels, if you're taking notes, you might write them down. One, we need to see Jesus according to his word. We all need to see Jesus according to his word in a world where all kinds of people have all kinds of wrong thoughts about Jesus. Many people, probably most people who have heard of Jesus, think he was a religious teacher, a good man, a champion for the poor and the oppressed, who cared for those in need, by all accounts, a good teacher who gets a bad rap because of what a variety of people do in his name. Muslims would take things a step further and say Jesus was a great prophet. Hindus might even go so far as to call him a god. And I should pause at this point and say that if you're a Muslim or a Hindu here today, you are welcome in this place. We hope you find Christians and our church family to be hospitable to you and honoring of you, even as we have a very different understanding of Jesus than you. An understanding that we prayerfully and lovingly hope you will see that Jesus is not merely a prophet and Jesus is not just a God. But these thoughts that people have today about Jesus are clearly not new. The disciples tell Jesus here, some think you're a prophet or a great religious teacher like Elijah or John the Baptist come back from the dead. Evidently, there was some mystery around who Jesus was. But then Jesus turns the question on them and he says, but who do you say that I am? And the emphasis on you there there is clear in the original language of the New Testament. What about you? It's like he's looking them straight in the eyes. What do you think about who I am? And in response, Peter, representing all the other disciples, says, you are the Christ. And I mentioned this word means Messiah. That's a reference to the one God had promised for centuries who would come and save his people. Now, just to get a feel for how significant this moment is, I want you to also hear how Matthew tells this story. So hold your place here in Mark chapter 8. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 16, where Matthew recounts this same story. And I want you to hear what Matthew says right after Jesus makes this, asks this question and Peter makes this statement. So whenever we see different accounts of the same story in the Bible, we get different perspectives on different details and their significance. So listen to what Matthew writes, starting in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. So just one book back in your Bible to the left. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, you'll recognize 
this almost verbatim, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then look at what happens next. So that's basically what we just read in Mark chapter 8. Listen to what Matthew tells us. Jesus answered Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So let's stop for a moment and think about what this means. A true understanding of who Jesus really is does not come naturally. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't figure this out on your own. No, Jesus says, my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Now just think about that in light of the story of the blind man back in Mark. That blind man was able to physically see because someone else opened his eyes. In the same way, these disciples only begin to spiritually see Jesus for who he is when the Father opens their eyes. Mark it down. We can only see Jesus for who he is if God supernaturally opens our eyes. The story of every single Christian, every single follower of Jesus is a story of God doing in your life what you could not do on your own. On your own, Christian, you were spiritually dead. Not kind of dead, partly dead. Dead. In the darkness of your sin. Until one day, by God's grace, He supernaturally opened your eyes to who Jesus is and He brought you to life. I know I've told it before. It's one of my favorite stories of conversion. So I'll share it here again of how Charles Spurgeon, so one of my favorite preachers in church history from England, came to faith. He had been doing all kinds of work to try to earn his way to God, to do what he could to save himself. Until one snowy Sunday morning when he wandered into a church where a guy was preaching who had hardly ever preached before. And this is what Spurgeon recalls. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, because this man was really stupid. <laughs> he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, 
My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, said he, in broad Essex. Sorry, I don't have the uh, accent to be able to do here. But many of you are looking to yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look. Look, you have nothing else to do but to look and live. Spurgeon said, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered. And now I can say, Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Has this happened to you? Has this happened to you? Has God opened your eyes to look and see who Jesus is? For some of you, I believe God has brought you here today. It's not snowing outside, and I hope you don't think I'm stupid, but God's brought you here today in this moment to open your eyes to who Jesus is. To look and see that though you have sinned against God, as we all have turned aside from God and His ways to ourselves and our own ways, and though you deserve, along with all of us, eternal judgment before a holy God, 
God loves you so much that He has sent His Son, Jesus, to live the life you could not live, a life of no sin. And then, even though He had no sin for which to die, He died the death you deserve to die. He took the payment for your sin upon Himself on a cross, died on that cross, then three days later rose from the grave so that you today, by turning from your sin and yourself and looking to, trusting in Jesus, you can be forgiven of all your sin and restored to relationship with God for all of eternity if you will just look at who Jesus really is. I invite you to see today. May God open hearts and eyes right now to who Jesus really is. And when he does, so now keep going, right after this in Matthew's account of this story, right after Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. My father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Then he says, look at verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you see it? How this question, who do you say Jesus is, is significant for you personally. And this question is significant for the church. Because it's in response to this question, who do you say Jesus is? And Peter's response, you're the Christ, that for the first time in all the Bible, we see the word church. You might circle it in your Bible there. It's the first time we see it in the Bible. So think about why this is so significant. What does it mean for Jesus to say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church? What is the rock that the church is built on? Think about it. Is the rock Peter? Is the rock Jesus? Are the disciples together the rock? Is the gospel the rock? What do you think? I believe the answer is yes. Let me explain. What makes this passage kind of confusing is other metaphors are used in different parts of the Bible to describe the church. You look in 1 Corinthians 3.11, we read Jesus is the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Jesus is called the rock. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. Of the church. So there are places in the Bible where rock or foundation metaphors are used to describe Jesus in relation to the church. But then you get to Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, and you see that the apostles and the prophets are referred to as the foundation of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul describes himself and the other apostles as the ones who are building the church. So you have different metaphors at different times in the Bible to make different points. So what's the point Jesus is making here? Well, what's unique here is that Peter's name actually means rock. So there's a bit of a play on words here. Jesus is saying, I tell you, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, which certainly seems to indicate some kind of specific foundation in Peter. But think about it. What was it in Peter? that made this so significant. 
Well, you look at the context, what happened right before this, you realize Peter just confessed Jesus is the Christ. And immediately after that, Jesus makes this statement about the church that he's building upon Peter and his confession of faith. The point then starts to become clear. Jesus is saying, in light of Peter's confession, you have confessed who I really am. And upon you and your proclamation of who I am, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, whenever and wherever followers of Jesus are proclaiming the truth about who Jesus is, Jesus will build his church and nothing can stop it. Which leads to the second major takeaway in this text today. If you're taking notes in our lives, we need to see Jesus according to his word. And as the church, we need to proclaim Jesus confidently in the world confidently like nothing can stop us isn't this the story of the church that unfolds in the bible after this here's peter the first disciple to make this declaration of who jesus is now turn with me one other place turn me over to acts chapter 2 turn me to acts chapter 2 so turn to the right you'll go past mark and then luke then john then acts chapter 2 after jesus dies on the cross and he rises from the grave he tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. That happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. Then right after that, Peter stands up and starts speaking. In verse 14, he starts, jump down with me to the end, verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. So this is the climax of Peter's sermon. First time a sermon was preached. And listen to the wording here. Peter proclaims, Acts 2, 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Did you see it? Jesus is the what? He's the Christ. What we read in Mark chapter 8, Matthew chapter 16, he's the Christ and Lord of all. Peter's proclaiming here exactly what he confessed at that significant moment in Mark 8 and Matthew 16. And what did Jesus say back in Matthew chapter 16? He said, based upon that declaration, Jesus would build his church. So what happens right after Peter proclaims this? Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself opens their eyes. Then listen to verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus as Christ. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is building his church upon the proclamation of who he is in the mouth of Peter and the other disciples. As you read the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter, the Roman government is trying to stop the gospel from spreading. Religious leaders are trying to stop the gospel from spreading, but they can't do it. They can't stop it. And that story continues for the first 12 chapters of Acts with Peter at the forefront of the story. But then around Acts chapter 13, Peter starts to take a backseat and Paul becomes prominent. 
throughout the rest of Acts. Yet the gospel keeps spreading and the church keeps growing. Do you know why? Because the reality is it's not ultimately about Peter or Paul. It's about wherever people who know Jesus is proclaiming who Jesus is, Jesus is building his church and nothing can stop it. So connect this even with what we heard last week on the stage, stories of men and women and teenagers who Jesus is using to tell other people about who he is through school Bible studies, women's Bible studies, orphan care, refugee ministry, furniture ministry. And as they do that work in Jesus' name, proclaiming who Jesus is, what's happening? Jesus is building his church. Like, Do you realize what we are a part of as a church? What you are a part of sitting where you are right now as a Christian in a local church, you're a part of an unstoppable force in the world. Spreading the greatest news in the world. Just realize what meaning. It's just, you're a part of something so much bigger than yourself. Something that is global, worldwide, and unstoppable. And what a good word that we need as a church. I just want to encourage us today, based on this text, based on what God is doing in this church during these days, let's see Jesus for who He is according to His Word. And let's build this church on proclaiming who Jesus is in the world. Confident that no matter what significant moments or challenges we ever walk through as a church, the gates of hell cannot stop the proclamation of Jesus as Christ. This is the story we are a part of. I read this quote this last week, just thinking about all the challenges the church faced in the New Testament throughout the last 2,000 years, all the significant moments. J.C. Ryle said, nothing can overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. And the true church outlives them all. God, may it be so. Would you bow your heads with me? Uh, all across this room, other locations online. Have, have you confessed Jesus as the Christ in your life? If not, I invite you to do that right now in this moment. To say to God, God, I see. You're opening my eyes right now and I see that I've sinned against you and I see that Jesus is not just a religious teacher, a good man, a prophet, or a God. He is the God, the Lord, the Savior who died for my sins, rose from the grave, and today I put my trust in Him. I look to Him and I receive by faith your salvation. Look to Him, look to Him, look to Him. And as you do, and for all who have, God, we pray, 
that you would help us to proclaim the truth about who you are in the city and around the world. And to trust that as we do, as your church, even the gates of hell cannot stop the work you are doing in building your church. God, we, we do. We pray for your help during these days of the church. And in each of our lives, we're a part of this big picture. Lord, help us to faithfully proclaim Jesus confidently proclaim Jesus. And we pray that you would draw many more Humans and Patricks and Sashas and many others to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, we are a forgetful people. Based on our humanness and our fallenness, we forget things. And the reality is, sometimes we forget things that are big, and sometimes we forget things that are small. I forgot my phone this morning. I never forget my phone. I forgot my phone. And sometimes the things are significant that we forget. Sometimes they are not significant. In some situations, when we forget things, it's actually quite important. I'll give you an example. I used to be a corporate pilot, and I have heard many stories of people who forgot to put the gear down. That's pretty significant. And also situations, unfortunately, where what was forgotten led to fatal crashes. Forgetfulness can lead to things that are significant or not so significant. And the same is true for the Christian life. There are some things that we might forget, biblically speaking, that don't have a great effect on us, at least eternally. And there are some things, if we forget them, can have a serious effect on our walk with Christ. So with that in mind today, we're going to see that we have, from a heart of a faithful shepherd, reminders that we need to be reminded of. Would you turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1? 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to share the context of this portion here. Second Peter chapter 1. Um, context of Second Peter. Tremendous, tremendous book. In the very first verse, Peter shares that he is a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see, these are his final words as a concerned shepherd. And the Lord has made it known that his departure from this earth is imminent. And we've seen that Peter is writing to those who have a same like faith as he says he has, or the apostles have. You see, true, genuine, saving faith is the same for everyone. You see, it's faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross, dying for our sins, believing that in him alone is salvation from your sins. And this is the second letter that he is writing to. Uh, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter that... I am writing you in which I am stirring you up your sincere mind by way of reminder. If this is the second letter, then that identifies it's the second of what he wrote earlier, which is First Peter, and he was writing to believers in Asia Minor. Writing to believers in Asia Minor. But yet within that, this book seems to go beyond just them and to, as we see in the beginning, to all believers in Jesus Christ. As we know, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable And so with that in mind, we've looked at this book so far, and we've seen really the theme of the book, the theme of the book. And you can see that in the first few verses. Look at verse 2, and we're going to review this today, but I want to read this. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. This book is about the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of him. It's about knowing Jesus Christ. If you look down in verse eight, and we'll look at this again too, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the book, in chapter 3, instead of being taken captive by the bad guys, he says here, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tremendous reality. So this book is about growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about growing in Him. And as we saw, Peter makes it clear that growing in Christ is based on His Word, His marvelous Word, His precious and magnificent promises working in us. Now we're also going to see today that this book is a reminder. It is a reminder of things that we should already know as believers but things that we need to be able to call to mind as we walk with Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, in this book, although it is a reminder and it is a focus on relationship with Christ, within that, Peter also shares some warnings to threats concerning our walk with Christ or knowing Christ. Peter, a concerned shepherd, reveals there are those who would pervert, twist, and mock the Word of God, which is a direct threat to our relationship with Jesus Christ. So then, these are Peter's last words, and they are his second epistle, and they are very important. And it is a reminder in regards to our relationship with Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, we're going to see specifically today that there are specific reminders that we need, and they come from a heart of a faithful shepherd. Let's read our passage, and I want to read up from verse 2 up through verse 15. We're only going to look at 12 to 15, but... Since 12 to 15 really speaks about everything that we've seen already, we're going to emphasize that first part and then get to verses 12 to 15. Verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. And then our passage, verse 12. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. What a tremendous passage, tremendous portion of Scripture. 
And as I've shared, we are forgetful people. And we need to be reminded. And the focus of what we're going to see today is that God wants to remind us of these truths on a continual basis. And he does it here specifically through faithful shepherds, ultimately through his word being proclaimed. Now, the first thing we're going to see, I believe, is that we always should place ourselves in a place where we can be reminded. You know, if I don't remind myself or I am not reminded by someone else, then I'm going to forget things. God has been so gracious to have people who help out in the office and do tons of work there, and I ask them to remind me of things. And if I'm not reminded of them, then I'm going to forget them. We need to be reminded. We need to place ourselves in a place in which we can be reminded. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Now, as you can see, our passage begins with this term, therefore, which indicates it doesn't stand on its own. It is connected to what was previously said. It's definitely connected to verses 10 and 11. And if you look at 10 and 11, they're connected to verses 8 and 9. And if you look at 8 and 9, they're connected back to verses 5 and 7, which are connected back to 2 through 4. What he's talking about today has to do with what he has shared in verses 2 through 11. Tremendous, wonderful truth. Now the reality is we're going to see that if you are in a biblical church, you should be reminded of things over and over again. If you walk out and say, I've heard that before, it shouldn't be a bad thought, it should be a good thought. You should be hearing that again. You see, there's no new truth. We gain insight into what God has already revealed. We grow a deeper understanding sometimes, but there is no new truth. God has given us His Word, and we need to be reminded of it day in and day out. So with that in mind, what is it that he is reminding them of? What does this therefore point to? He says, therefore, I shall always remind you of these things. What are these things that Peter says, I'm always going to be ready or unceasingly ready to remind you of? Let's walk through what we've seen. This is going to be a large portion of what we do today, and it is a reminder. And we're going to look at verses 2 through 11 and then summarize it with our passage today. Look at verse 2. Here we have God's desire for true believers. God's desire. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's what God wants. God wants His grace and thus His peace to be multiplied in our relationship in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? He wants us to function by His grace more and more and more and experience His peace more and more and more. That's what God wants for us. Grace and peace be multiplied, magnified. And then notice verse 3. He says, because of something, or seeing that something has happened. This is why. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through, again, the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now, I'm not going to re-preach what I've shared before in this. You can go back and listen to it, but I want to review it, and I want to remind you of these things, because this is what Peter is speaking of specifically. What a tremendously wonderful verse for true believers. And remember, the apostle Peter here is about to, as we'll see later on, to go to his death. He's about to go to the Lord. 
And also, like we see with the Apostle Paul and with the Apostle John, in their final letters, whether it's 2 Timothy or Revelation, whatever it might be, they were pointing to the sufficiency of the Word of God as they were about to go to be with the Lord. Seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and God's. Everything you need to live the Christian life has been gifted to us already. That's what it says. Everything we need for this life and for our relationship with God, for godliness. And it is, middle of verse 3, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, and in that relationship, He has granted us everything we need to know and have and understand for that relationship. He provides everything that we need. And then we have an explanation of really how he does that. Because you might say, well, how did he provide everything we need? How has that already been granted to me? I'm a believer. I don't feel like I have everything pertaining to life and godliness. But God says, look at verse 4. For, he's explaining, for, you know, I don't just say for, he was a great guy. There's something I said before that, right? I'm explaining. And here he says, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Tremendous statement on what God wants us to understand about his word. It's precious. It is so valuable. It is more valuable than gold or silver. And it is magnificent. It is the greatest. Precious and magnificent promises. And promises are things that God says that he will keep his word. He is faithful to his word. In order that, middle of four, that by them, speaking of his word, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. God uses his precious and magnificent word to cause us to become more like his son Jesus. He says here to partake of the divine nature. We don't become divine, but we partake of his character as Christ through his word by his spirit works in our lives. He has provided us his tremendously valuable and great promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped, if you're a true believer, you've escaped that corruption that is in the world by lust. Before you were saved, your heart was corrupted by your own desires, just like everyone in the world. We all were that way. It's corruption. It's decaying. Our hearts were decaying with sin. And we escaped that. We were delivered from that through faith in Jesus Christ. So then, we need to remember, we need to remember that when it comes to growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we already have everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him by His precious and magnificent promises. And all hell will break loose to try to tempt you not to trust in what God has said, to believe what He said, to not rely on Him, to believe that He is sufficient through His Word for everything. The world will tempt you, and the Christian world, in a sense, will tempt you to think, well, you need to do it this way, this way, this way, whatever it might be, to lean on your own understanding rather than to believe that God has provided everything. And we need to be reminded of that. And we'll see later on, he considers it right to remind us of these things, because we forget. We can walk out of here today, true believers following the Lord, and all of a sudden something happens in our life, and we forget what God says, and we don't apply the truth to our hearts, and thus we don't respond rightly. We need to remember what God says. Tremendous, tremendous passage. When it comes to growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we grow through the Word of God working in our hearts. That's how we get to know Him better and better. And as we know Him better and better, He lives His life through us. 
So with that in mind, what else could he say? That's so wonderful. Not much left to say, right? But here we see the reality is with what God has provided, he also asks us to respond. Look at verse 5, and as we turn there, there is, in reality, our part and God's part. You say, wait a second, Greg, you're always saying it's all Christ, apart from him we can do nothing. Yes, apart from him, we can do nothing. But as we abide in him, he expects us to step out in obedience and respond rightly in circumstances, to do the right thing, to obey him. But it's all by him. You see, his power and strength working in our lives doesn't happen in a vacuum. We've been provided everything pertaining to life and God. That doesn't mean we sit in our room and wait for him to move our arms and move us around. He enables us to obey his word in the context of a real relationship with him. Notice verse 5. Now for this very reason also, because you've been given everything, his precious and magnificent promises, he says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. And we just spent some time on this, and we'll talk about it in review. In your faith... Very important, supply moral excellence in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, love. There's a list of things here. And he says here in the main command is to supply or to add to, to bring forth. Later on, he's going to say, if you practice these things, it's doing, it's actually doing. Now, a person without a relationship with Christ can do Bible stuff. The Pharisees did it, right? They were clean on the outside. This is from a different perspective. He says there, now for this very reason, applying all diligence, as being diligent, making sure you're doing it, making every effort. Believer, make every effort, right? He says, in your faith. Everything I do is in the context of faith. I'm trusting Jesus. When I step out, situation comes before me, I don't know how to respond. Lord God, help me respond rightly. And his word comes to mind, I trust him, and I step out by faith. I go to work, I trust him, I step out by faith and do my work heartily unto him and not unto man. Whatever it might be, I'm trusting the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of moral excellence, which we'll see. Instead of yielding my body to yucky stuff and my mind to that, I make the decision in Christ to not go there by faith and know that he will deliver me from that temptation. It's by faith. We are to add something. We are to supply these things. And you see, true, genuine faith in the person of Jesus, not faith in some system or whatever, in Jesus Christ, believing what he said from his word, that's from his mouth, right? It's his word, will produce good works. It'll produce what God wants us to do, obedience. You see, faith, true, genuine faith, works. It does manifest the life of Christ. We see that in James chapter 2. Saving faith will manifest in God working through you in this life. You might remember Philippians chapter 2, a tremendous passage. Paul says, so then, my brethren, Philippians 2.12. Actually, turn to Philippians 2.12. Hold your fingers in Second Peter. Philippians 2.12. So then, my brethren, just as you have always obeyed. It's about obedience, Right? God says, by his grace and strength and faith, we do it. You have always obeyed, not in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And this is what this obedience looks like. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
When you've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, God is at work in us. and He is working out of our lives the salvation. We are in the moment being set apart from sin unto God. So now as we look at this, he says, well, applying all diligence, back in verse 5, for this very reason, applying all diligence, that means every effort. I am exhausting my energy to do these things by faith. By faith. Exhausting to do them by faith. Verse 5, now for this reason, applying all diligence in your faith. Here you go. Here's the list. Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, love. These are characteristics that we looked at two messages ago of a real relationship with Jesus Christ where he is producing these qualities in us in real time. In real time. The first one he talks about is moral excellence. It speaks of those qualities which are worthy of praise in regard to morality. You see, as God's word works in our lives, we, by his power and strength and faith, say no to the filth we used to fill our minds with and are tempted to fill our minds with. And we turn to Christ and allow him to renew our minds with truth. We don't act upon those things, but we turn to Christ to be delivered from them. Supply, add moral excellence. We should be, as we'll see, being more and more like Christ, morally speaking. Secondly, we should be increasing, he says, knowledge. We should not know the same about God we knew 20 years ago. We should be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Yes, it's all been revealed. There's no new knowledge, but we should be growing in what has been revealed. Third, we should be increasing and growing in self-control. We fail. We fail in self-control on a daily basis. But we should be growing in that. We should be able to say by the power of the Spirit in the context of faith, diligently say no. We are controlling ourselves by allowing God's Word to control our thinking and thus our actions. We should be persevering, remaining under when difficulties come more and more. If we're following Jesus, growing in His Word, walking with Him, you're going to endure those things that come upon you, persevering. We should be becoming more godly. Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. Than to be the king of a vast domain Or be held in sin's dread sway I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world
Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.